0: So you managed to survive the great snow and ice of uh, 2018. Well done. I know quite a few people have boiler problems, people pouring, having to pour boiling water over frozen outlet pipes and stuff, but we got through it. The blitz spirit prevailed. <laughs> Amazing. We all pulled together. Right. We, uh, this morning, are continuing the series has been looking at this term based on this book by Jen Wilkin Nunn. Like him, series we're looking at uh, ten characteristics of God, ways in which God is different from us, and why that is good news. And God is very different from us. If it needs to be reminded of our human limitations, this past week has exposed that to us. Uh, just an inch or two of snow can throw or does throw the whole country into complete chaos. Lindsay Kennedy was stuck on the A31 in the forest for 11 hours on Thursday night. Uh, caught in that. Uh, so our human limitations have been sorely exposed this week, but God is not limited in the way that we are, Hallelujah. And today we're going to look at two of these characteristics. We're coming to a uh, conclusion. Of this series we're going to finish next week by looking at God's sovereignty. This, today we're going to look at God being omniscient—that is, He's the God of infinite power—and we're going to look at the theme of God being an omnipotent, that he's uh, so omniscient, the God of infinite knowledge, and omnipotent, the God of infinite power. We're going to take those two themes together, and my aim this morning, my hope is that those of us who know Christ will be strengthened and encouraged as we think about God and his infinite knowledge and his infinite power, and that any here who don't yet know Christ will see that Jesus is the one in whom your search for knowledge and power can be satisfied, because the reality is that all of us are looking for knowledge and power. Actually, these are the kind of the two basic human idolatries, that we want to know stuff, which is good, but our desire for knowledge is often corrupted and we want power, we want to be able to do stuff, and that's good, but very often that gets corrupted as well. And what I hope us to see this morning is that in Christ we find pure knowledge and pure power, and that's good news for us. And to help us in that, we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. It's on page 1173 on the Bibles on your chairs. And we're going to look at two prayers that the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and which I believe by God's grace are also prayers for us here in Paul and Bournemouth in 2018. Uh, These are prayers that describe something of God's power and something of God's knowledge and they're prayers that Paul prays in order to lay hold of God's power and knowledge for the sake of the church. And so as I, as I read these two prayers, listen out for when Paul references knowledge and when he references power and how he acknowledges the knowledge and power of God and how he, how he prays that we would know and receive power. So the first prayer is Ephesians 1, verse 15 down to 23. For this reason, for the reason of the things he's been explaining already. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. who fills everything in every way. Hallelujah. Then turn over the page to chapter 3. i going to read from verse 14. For this reason, for the other things that Paul has been explaining about what God has done for us, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Whoa. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we think about the way that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, ask that we would pray similar things for ourselves and the power these prayers might be real in our hearts and lives in this place today. I ask that we might see you with greater clarity, and might know the reality of your power at work us in us with more certainty. Amen. Okay, first thing, God's knowledge and power is in a different category from ours. God's knowledge and power is of a different category than ours. The Apostle Paul prays that the Ephesians would know more of God, but God is the one who knows all things. Whatever we know is always going to be a subset of what he knows. Our knowledge is like this. God's is infinite. Whatever we know is always just a little subset of the things that God knows. And what we know always depends on what God has revealed to us. And Paul prays that the Ephesians might know more about God. And he also prays that they would have power But God has all the power. God has the power that raises the dead to life. That's how Paul describes God's power here. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us now. And his power can do more than we can possibly imagine. Paul makes this amazing claim at the end of this prayer that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work where? Within us. So... We have knowledge and we have power, but the knowledge and power that we have is always just a subset of the knowledge and power that God has, and any knowledge and power that we have is dependent on His knowledge and power. And we need to step back and think about that. Now, we all, if we're honest, know how little we really know. You might be an expert in an area, but the thing about real expertise is you become an expert in an area and You become an expert and you realize how limited your knowledge is. That's how expertise works. That's why there are still millions of people pursuing PhDs every year around the world because there's always more to be explored and people become more and more expert in more and more things. But the more we become expert in, the more we realize actually how little we know. And even world experts on subjects know that their knowledge is limited. The more you know, the more you realize that you need to find out. That's just the nature of knowledge. Knowledge is is infinite and whatever we know can always just be a fraction of the knowledge which is out there. And the reality is that there are, in most things, we're not experts. Most things we know very little about. You might have areas of specialist expertise, you might be able to maybe go and mastermind and sit in the chair and answer your area of specialized knowledge, but It's only going to be one or two things that we really know really well. Most things, we're completely ignorant. We rely on the expertise of others, and we see our limits when we can't control the weather. And so the claim I want to make this morning is that God knows everything, and God can do all things. And if that's true, which I believe it is, then we would be wise to look to God for knowledge and power. We want to know things, we want to understand things, we want to have power to do things that actually the wise thing to do would be to look at the God who has all knowledge and has all power. That's the place to look. He's the one to look to. Because all other sources of knowledge and power are secondary, subsidiary, they're derivative. That knowledge and power originates in God. He has all the knowledge and he has all the power and so if we want to know things and if we want to know power then it's wise to look to God first and foremost rather than anything else. That's the claim that I think Paul is praying for these Ephesians and that's the claim I want to make this morning. So Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would look to God first and foremost over everything else for knowledge and for power. And that's interesting when you think more about the context of the church in Ephesus. If you go to Acts 19 uh, and read the story of when Paul went to Ephesus to first preach the gospel there, this was clearly a city that was interested in the pursuit of knowledge and a city that was interested in the pursuit of power. And you see that in some of the stories that happened. And one of the things that happens is when the power of the gospel is displayed through the ministry of Paul, it says that a whole crowd of people, they came and they brought their magic scrolls and burned them, which in kind of contemporary value is like 10 million pounds worth of books that were burnt. And what that indicates is that these were people who were pursuing knowledge. And they were pursuing that knowledge in a way that we wouldn't tend to do in 21st century Britain. They were pursuing knowledge through sorcery, through magic, but they were people who wanted to know stuff. And when they came face to face with the power of Jesus Christ, they realized that the knowledge they had was subsidiary and actually deviant, and they came and they literally threw it on the fire and got rid of it because it was false knowledge and they had found one who could give them true knowledge. Ephesus was a place that pursued knowledge. It was also obviously a place that produced, uh, that. that that pursued power. After that instant of the burning of the magic scrolls, we read about uh, the craftsmen in, in Ephesus who made uh, models of the goddess Artemis, getting very upset because people were turning away from worship of Artemis, this false god, and turning to worship of the true god Jesus. And a riot erupts in the city. They all gather in the arena. I've been there. visited there a few years ago. It's an amazing spot, and it's amazing to stand there and think about the crowds gathering and shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, because... They were worried about worshiping their goddess, but fundamentally they were worshiping, worried about the threat to their power because the gospel had come and people were turning away from the false god Artemis and were turning to the true god Jesus and weren't going to buy their idols anymore and their whole power structure was going to be <coughs> demolished and unraveled and that was threatening to them. So Ephesus is a city where people are very concerned about the pursuit of knowledge and about the pursuit of power and Paul says to these Ephesians and he prays for the Ephesians, The way that you get knowledge, the way that you get power is through Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary, subsidiary. Gospel message upends all human pursuit of knowledge and power. And so a question for us to think about this morning is, have have our lives been upended by an encounter with the God of infinite knowledge and infinite power? That's what happened in Ephesus. The whole city actually was upended by an encounter with the God of infinite knowledge and infinite power. What about us? Have our lives been turned upside down by an encounter with this God? That's the first thing. God's knowledge, God's power is of a different category than ours. Second thing is that knowledge and power are good, but they are easily corrupted. Knowledge is good. Learning is a basic human right. Kids are meant to go to school and learn stuff. Education is good. The kind of one surefire predictor of a nation increasing in prosperity and health and all kinds of positive outcomes is the level of education that children receive. You educate kids, you get girls into school especially, teach them, culture changes. People's prospects improve, people start to generate income, health improves, Health whole society lifts. <coughs> Education has a remarkable effect, in many ways this should be the first priority of all governments around the world, to educate the kids in their countries, because that is what brings health and wealth and prosperity to a, to a nation. Education, knowledge is good, it changes things. It's good to pursue knowledge. But our thirst for knowledge is so easily warped. Knowledge is good, but our desire for knowledge can easily become very corrupted. It happens at all kinds of levels. It happens at the top level with a, with a tyrannical government who wants to know everything about all its citizens and controls the thoughts and the movements and the actions of its people. It's a, that's a corrupted knowledge. It's a corrupted power. But at the small level, we can act like that as well in kind of a, a mini level. In uh, this book, Jen Wilkins talks about the ten- human tendency to meddle, that we can have an over interest in the affairs of others, that we can seek to control people by wanting to know things, wanting to know too much. It can happen with parents wanting to know too much about what their kids are doing. It can happen with, with your partner. It can happen with a friend. It can happen with a work colleague. A meddling, a kind of getting too involved in somebody's life, wanting to know things that actually you don't need to know, shouldn't know. We can be overwhelmed by information. We can suffer in our day from information overload, that we can be plugged in the whole time. Difficult to switch off. There's always information coming at us. There's the the TV and the computer and the phone, and you can the whole time be wired in, wired into the news, wired into social media all the all the time, having information pumped into you. And actually, what? That hap- what happens then is rather than just knowing more and being better, it, become, it's, it is kind of corrupting because we end up just dulled and you actually end up quite depressed just by constant information. We all need times to disconnect, just to rest, to let our minds and our souls kind of be washed of all the stuff in the world. And you stay constantly plugged in. It, you're not just growing in knowledge. You're, you're actually going to dull yourself and depress yourself and damage yourself. We can suffer from information overload. Similarly, power is good. Power can be used for good. Power gets stuff done. Powerful people make things happen. But our thirst for power, again, is so easily corrupted, so easily warped. And we can see this in the things that we esteem in our, in our culture. You see it in, in some of the things that we value. Think about sports, which... Uh, it's a reflection of physical strength as power. Watching the Winter Olympics, those extraordinary... I mean, the Winter Olympics, it's kind of comical. They were just slipping down hills the whole time, aren't they? It's difficult to take seriously, but it's remarkable. You see see the, the somersaults and the turns they can do, the, the skill of the spear, because it's dangerous. There's a, there's a power about that physical strength. I was watching the, the Indoor Athletic Championships last night from Birmingham that, Young American sprinter Coleman just got a new world record at 60 meters. 6. Point, what was it? 6.7 seconds or something, wasn't it? He did that at 60 meters in just. Ex- watching in slow mo, mar- slow motion, the physical power as he kind of flew down the track. More time in the air than touching the ground. Just extraordinary, and and then we can admire that. There is something admirable about physical strength as power, and physical strength as power can be good because it can be a protective force. If you're in danger, you want somebody who's physically strong to come and rescue you. If your house is burning down, you want a physically strong fireman who can get you out of there. Physical strength can be good, but physical strength can also be negative. We can make idols of the physically strong. We can idolize the footballer. We can idolize the athlete. We can make idols of our own bodies with obsessive attention to our physical well-being, and of course, physical strength as power can become literally abusive because the strong can abuse the weak, as we see again and again. Another thing that we cherish in our culture is glamour, beauty as power. And beauty is good. Beauty is good because beauty is beautiful. But beauty as power can also be very, very negative because beauty as power is used manipulatively. Jen Wilkins, in his book, gives the example of, a, of a, how beauty is used manipulatively in that if you're beautiful, it opens all kinds of doors to you quite unfairly, simply on the basis of your physical good looks. Beautiful people get away with far more than the rest of us do. They're allowed to do things the rest of us don't do. They find doors open for them that the rest of us don't have open to us because people respond to beauty. And... And that can be very negative, it can be very manipulative. And of course, the other thing about physical beauty as power is that it passes. And so we see in our society this desperate fight, this desperate struggle to hold on to youthfulness, to hold on to physical beauty because we think that's where power is. See, in business, wealth as power things which are positive, of course, there are about business, about wealth as power. Wealth generation is good. We need businesses which provide work for people so that people can provide for themselves and their families and can have dignity because of the work that they do. But wealth as power is also negative. It's easily corrupted because of the way in which it stratifies society, that we tend to value people by what they are worth in financial terms. And somehow think that those with more money are (coughs) are not only in material terms worth more, but somehow morally worth more than those who have less. And that's a corruption. That's a distortion. And something else we value in our culture is personality, charisma, celebrity. Celebrity power. Now charisma can be great. It can be very positive because it can be used to motivate people to get things done. But... Again, it can be corrupted and abused because it can become very manipulative. And we can find actually that the whole focus is on style rather than substance. That rather than what is really full of integrity and character gets overlooked and what is flashy and catches the attention seems to have the power knowledge and power are good but they're so easily corrupted so we need the right kind of knowledge and power in the right way we need knowledge and power that is pure rather than corrupt and the most important knowledge that we can possess is knowledge of him this is what paul prays for the ephesians verse 17 of chapter 1 i pray i keep asking i keep asking that the god of our lord jesus christ the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may what be better looking, be more physically impressive, have a more successful business, have more charisma. No, I keep asking the Father that you would know him better. That's true knowledge. That's pure knowledge, to know God better. That's the knowledge that's free of corruption this is a knowledge that is too wonderful to discover by the normal human pursuits of knowledge. You, you don't learn more of God just by going to school and learning more. You don't go, learn more of God by going to the gym and working harder. You don't learn more of God by building a successful business. You don't learn more of God by developing uh, an effective, charismatic personality. Now, you, you learn more of God as a result of God's gift. This is why Paul is asking God. He's asking God to give the gift of himself to the Ephesians that they might see, they might know more of what God is like. And this needs to be our prayer for ourselves, that we would, we would know more of God, that we would receive more of this gift. We need to ask like Paul does. You see the persistence of his prayer. I keep asking, I keep asking. I have not stopped. I keep at it because this is knowledge that we need. The knowledge we need is knowledge of God, knowledge that is pure, knowledge that is good. And the most important power we could possess is his power at work in us. We need to know the incomparably great power of God for those of us who believe. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the power that placed all things under his feet. And Paul says that, Christ was raised from the dead and all things were placed under his feet. Why? For us, for the church. God has displayed his power in Christ for our benefit, for our good. And we need to grasp the enormity of God's power in order to grasp the enormity of God's love for us. The amazing miracle of what Christ Jesus has done for us. We need to know that power at work within us. And that power is a pure power. It's a power free of corruption. It's a power free of distortion. And so Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and the prayer we need to pray for ourselves is that we would know more of God and that we'd experience more of God. Let's pray for that. As John says this evening, we're gathering at 502 to worship together. My prayer for us as we gather to spend kind of unhurried time in God's presence is that as a consequence of doing that, we would know and experience more of God. That's what we need. We need to know more of God and experience more of God. His knowledge, so we might see more of Him. His power at work in us. Final thing. What does it mean then to live in the knowledge and power of God? What does that mean? Well, it means there are things that we can't do. Here are some things that we can't do. You you cannot outsmart God. We can have a very exaggerated sense of our own cleverness. You know, I often find is that people pose questions about faith, about Jesus, about God, which sound very clever, or they think are very clever. Tricky questions that people ask about God, and they ask them as if God has never heard them before. Do you think God has never heard before a question about, why is there suffering in the world? Do you think God's never heard that one? People ask questions about, hasn't evolution disproved God? You, do you think God hasn't heard that question before? There's no question which is so clever that it outsmarts God, that it outfoxes him. Think about Adam and Eve hiding in the garden when Ed when rebelled against God. I mean, the craziness of it, they think they're going to outsmart God by going and hiding in some bushes, think God won't be able to see them. I mean, it's, that's what we do as human beings. And in Psalm 2, it says that God laughs. God laughs at human endeavors to outsmart him and sees how ridiculous they are. You can't outsmart God. You cannot bargain with God. We can't say, God, if I do this, can you do that? That's just not how it works because God is the God of infinite knowledge and the God of infinite power. What could he possibly need? What could you offer him in a bargain? I was watching a documentary the other evening about Saudi Arabia and about the corruption of that government and about the huge especially military contracts over the last 20, 30, 40 years, how the Saudis have placed contracts in the UK and other Western nations for arms, and we've sold them arms, but we've also effectively paid huge bribes to members of the Saudi royal family. And, you know, God isn't like that. He doesn't need our bribes. He doesn't need our kickbacks. All things, says here 122, all things are under his feet. You can't bargain with God. You've got nothing to play with. You've got nothing to offer him. You cannot fool God. You might be good at lying to and manipulating people, but God is not fooled. You can't fool God by adjusting your profile on your Facebook page and trying to look like something you're not really. God sees. God knows what we're really like. He sees our hearts. You can't fool God. And also, we cannot rely on God to forget things. Now we can... As human beings, we can resent our forgetfulness. It's a pain being forgetful, but it's also a mercy. You know, all the things, there's things which I've, uh, I've forgotten, which I'd love to remember, but I'm sure there's countless things I've forgotten, and I'm very glad I've forgotten them, because they're not good things to remember. But God doesn't forget. You know how it is in human relationships. If we, something goes wrong, or say something we shouldn't, or do something we shouldn't, we think, leave it a few days and it will be okay, because everybody will forget about it and we can move on. It's not how it is with God. He has perfect recall. He doesn't forget a thing. He remembers it all and sees it perfectly clearly. Scripture says that God says, I will remember their sins no more, which is a mercy. What that means is that God chooses not to bring them to mind. It doesn't mean that he couldn't. It doesn't mean that they're gone, forgotten. No, he chooses not to remember them. He chooses not to think about them. When he forgives our sins, he chooses not to bring them to mind. But God doesn't forget. We can't rely on God's forgetfulness to let us off the hook. What we rely on is God's mercy. It's his mercy that deals with our sin. Not that he just kind of forgets that we've sinned. It's the mercy of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ by which our sin is dealt with. Things we can't do. <clears throat> what does it mean positively then to live in the knowledge and power of God? Well, what it means is that God God is our treasure. Paul's prayer is that we would have the eyes of our hearts opened. It's a wonderful kind of graphic image. The eyes of your heart. The heart representing the emotions, the feelings, the inner you, the real you. And this picture of the heart having eyes, that the heart can be blind to what is true and what is good. But Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts might be open so that we would see. And he, he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to, to hope, the hope that we have in Christ. He prays that our hearts, the eyes of, our hearts be, eyes of our hearts would be open to the riches that are ours in Christ. <clears throat> Now the hope of Christianity, the hope that Paul prays that, that we would have, is, is not that we would be happy all the time. And this is one of the things that we need to be clear about, especially when we're talking to those who don't know Jesus. one of the kind of myths that we can sometimes try and sell people. Is you turn, put your faith in Jesus and everything's going to be alright and you'll be, you'll be happy. And coming to faith in Christ, I believe, does bring you into happiness because it brings you into joy, but it also brings you into conflict. See that in the Apostle Paul's life, read through Acts. See the hardships the Apostle Paul went through. It doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy. No, the hope that Paul prays that we would know as the eyes of our hearts are opened is this, that we would know God, that we would realize that in Christ we have found the great treasure that we have found the pearl of great price. You know, Jesus told those stories. He told a story about a man who found in a field a box of treasure and he sold everything else he had in order to buy the field to gain the treasure. He told a story about a pearl merchant who found the greatest pearl ever and sold everything else he had to get this one pearl. And the point is that God is the pearl. God is the treasure. And we need the eyes of our hearts open to see that God is our treasure. And it's from his riches, this riches we find in God, it's from his riches that he strengthens us. 316, I pray that out of his glorious riches, not out of his poverty, not out of his lack, no, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirits in your inner being. And when we're strengthened in this way, what we find as we seek God as our treasure is we find the love of God we know the love of God look how Paul prays here verse 19 of of chapter 3 I pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge we human beings want knowledge knowledge is good but Paul says there's a there's a love which is greater than any knowledge we can have you You have the eyes of your heart open to see God, see what he is like, to find him as your treasure. And you're open to an experience of love. An experience of love that is greater than any other knowledge. Of all the things to know, the greatest is this. The love of God. Our treasure in him. We need to get to know God. We need to learn his love. Might be there's some here who need to... Find that love, discover it for the first time. This morning, you, you need to have the eyes of your heart open so you can see that the treasure to pursue over everything else is God. There's nothing else that compares no, no human uh, power, wealth, beauty, charisma, nothing that compares with gaining Christ, finding Him as your treasure, Him as your prize. And there are probably others of us who know that but need to be reminded of it. He's our treasure. He's the prize, and in Him we can know love that surpasses knowledge. Something else it means to live in the knowledge and power of God is this, that to know that resurrection power is at work in us. We're getting close to Easter. Christ died. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. And Paul says here, that his incomparably great power is for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. That's an amazing thing for Paul to claim, for us who put our trust in Christ. Resurrection power is at work in us. We're empowered with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Amazing. What does that mean? What does it mean to live in that power? Well, it means that we're not powerless. It means that when we're faced with temptations, we're not powerless. We don't have to give in to them. Why? Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. If Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God, and that power of God is at work in you, then of course you can refuse temptation. Of course you can. Because it's resurrection power that's at work in you. It's not weak power. It's not little uh, phone battery power that has to be charged up every eight hours. No, it's the resurrection power of God that's at work in us. This is serious power. We're empowered by God. It means we can do amazing things. It means that we should have great confidence about what God can do through us looking around, we can't have much confidence in the flesh, we can't have much confidence in our natural strength and ability, but hey, we can have power, confidence in the power of God's resurrection, power at work in us. Something else it means to live in the strength and the power of God, knowledge of God, is to know that we are members of his body. The church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul describes the church as the fullness of Christ. There's a sense in which the church fills out, displays, demonstrates who Jesus is. That's what we're called to do. We're called to fill out, display, demonstrate what Christ is like. And we do that as we know him and as his power works in us. And we do this from this relationship of love. We have power, Paul prays, may you have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ." And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The church is somehow the fullness of Christ. We display Christ to the world. And we're to know the fullness of God as his love as at work in us. Because we are members of his body. You come in faith to him and you're joined in. You're grafted into Christ. You become part of his body. Fills with Christ, to display the fullness of Christ to the world. That's what it means to live in the knowledge and power of God. And one more thing it means for us, we can see in this passage, is that we, we should ask for the unimaginable. Verse 20 of chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do imme- immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> he is able to do immeasurably more. And that's a verse that people often trip over because you think, well, I can imagine a lot. I can think of a lot. And you're saying that God can do more than that? Yes, He can. The thing is, it begins to make sense when you ground it in very practical things. Next two weeks, we've got offerings for our 2020 vision to brought to the church a few weeks back. Plans we have for this building especially we want to knock it down and rebuild it. We're talking about millions of pounds. And that is unimaginable actually for us in terms of where we are. And I look at my bank account and my figures and what I've got spare this month and I'm thinking, man, this looks unimaginable. It's unimaginable. How can we possibly talk about raising millions of pounds to rebuild this site? Well We can't, but now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work where? Within us. If his power is at work within us, and he can do more than we can ask or imagine. Now I'm asking for millions of pounds. We need to ask for millions of pounds because that's what we need. It's beyond us, but it's not beyond him. We ask for the unimaginable. This is what it is to live in the knowledge and power of God. Let's stand together. I'd like us to read those last two verses of Ephesians 3 together as a kind of declaration of faith, as a prayer for us, as a cry of help and a declaration of hope in who God is. Let's read together verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Yes, Lord, we ask you, I pray that we would know that, I pray that we would be people who do live in the knowledge and the power of God, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to see you. I pray that we'd know you as our treasure. I pray that we'd know the reality. We'd lay hold of this hope that the resurrection power of God is at work within us. Lord, thank you that you've called us to be members of your body, filled with gods, to make God known to all the worlds. And Lord, we do want to be people who ask the unimaginable, the Because we know that you are the God of immeasurable power, able to do all things. And so we lay hold of you, Jesus. We lay hold of you. We look to you. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't pursue knowledge and power in the wrong ways. I pray that we wouldn't be swept up by the the patterns of the world. But Lord, we, we would again have an encounter with you, just as those Ephesians did, which turned everything upside down, turned their lives and turned that city upside down when the false gods, the false gods of knowledge and power were exposed as, as, as knowledgeless and powerless when people saw the reality of knowledge and power of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, may that be true for us. May our lives be, again, upended by the reality of who you are and what you've done. Ask in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.